and welcome to the second episode of the Yorkshire Vets podcast. I'm Steve Hancock. This week is International Assistance Dog Week. So in recognition of that, I have come to Sheffield to interview a couple of senior members of staff at the charity Support Dogs. They're a Yorkshire-based charity, but they do provide support dogs to people around the UK. Um, The typical dogs that they provide support people with autism, physical disabilities and people who are suffering from epilepsy. I'm joined today by Rita Housen, the Chief Executive here at Support Dogs, and Danny Anderson, who's the Fundraising Manager. We're going to discuss a little bit about the charity itself, their roles within the charity, um, the benefits that the Support Dogs are able to provide to the people that they go to work with, and a little bit about fundraising, potentially how you, our listener, could provide support, whether that be through donation, fundraising, or just raising awareness of the charity itself. So we're going to speak first to Rita. To start with Rita, if you could maybe tell me a little bit about yourself, um, your role for the charity, um, how you ended up here and and how rewarding you find the work. Um, Yeah, so I've been with Support Dogs just under 25 years. Um, So I started as a volunteer uh, all those years ago, um, working with the dogs, so like as a training volunteer. Um, And... So we didn't get paid everything uh, at that particular time. There was no employed staff for support dogs. Um, and there was about three of us working, um, the founder of the charity and then two volunteers. Um, so I've been with the charity all that time. I then went to head trainer, training manager, director of operations. Uh, and then about three years ago, I actually moved over more into the business side of the charity um, and was given the job of CEO. Um as you can tell, being here all those years, I absolutely adore what I do. Um, I feel very lucky that when I get up in the morning, I look forward to coming to work. and Not many people do. Um, so, yeah, I have a real passion for the charity. Um, I love what we do. Um, we have grown as well, and that's been really exciting for us. Excellent. So the charity itself, it's probably best to sort of cover that from your point of view here. Um, obviously, there's information on the website, which we'll discuss um, at, at the end, and there'll be links to the website on our website. Um, but if you could tell me a little bit about the charity itself, obviously, it's, it's about 25 years old now. Um, if you could tell us a bit about kind of bringing a charity from nothing as you were as you were here from the start, and also what sort of the needs that you're fulfilling with, with the people you're helping, I suppose. Um, yeah, so... Back 25 years ago, um, the charity started really catering for the needs of people, uh, disabled people, with their pet dogs. So at that particular time, there were a few charities around that would actually train a dog and then supply it to a person. Um, But a lot of people did have their pet dog at home with them. Um, And... You know, that the pet dog was perfectly capable of doing all the assistance dog work. So we were quite unique in that sense is that when we started, those were the, you know, that was our audience. They were, they were our clients. Um, so we, it resulted in training many breeds of dogs, um, not you, you know, your stereotypical Labrador Retriever working breed. Um, we trained from Jack Russells, Border Terriers, um, right up to, I think on one occasion we had a St. Bernard. Um, so a wide variety of breeds, different shapes and sizes. Um, and it was really lovely because we were working together with that person. Um, so and more going, of a, a one-to-one basis. Yeah, and going than... on, you know, going through that journey together. So, you know, you would be a trainer with your client and the dog and you would be learning new things and new experiences. Um, 
and that was for so many years but what we also did is work with people that not only had a primary disability but maybe a secondary condition such as diabetes or epilepsy right. um, or kind of mental health problems so we actually got involved in you know maybe tailor training um, our program to, to cater for other conditions as well so with, again we became well known for looking at multiple disabilities right. um, so again we worked with diabetes we worked with epilepsy um, and autism right back in the early 1990s when we first started um, we then um, out the founder of the charity um, had um, read a lot of reports of dogs that can um, pick up on someone's epileptic seizure, epileptic fit, before they actually have it. Um, and she wanted to investigate that at that time and was working with a young girl with epilepsy um, and we decided to train the dog to actually alert her. Um, and the dog did. Um, it, it actually was successful. The dog gave her something like a 20-minute warning before she actually had the Which seizure. Is that's quite significant because, you know, that allows her to prepare, put herself in a safe in a exactly, safe space. Exactly, yeah, and... yeah. And for the first time, really, actually knowing that a seizure is going to happen, yeah. um, stops. So the actual seizure itself isn't the danger, it's more the falls yeah. and the accidents around it that happen. So if we could prevent that, that would be fantastic. Um, so the dogs don't cure the epilepsy, they don't stop the seizures coming no. on, they basically let them know it's going to happen. Um, and we can teach tasks around that as well so that was kind of back in 1994 93 94 um that we actually worked with this girl um and started to do a little bit more investigation into that um we started using rescue dogs for that particular program we find that found that some of the rescue dogs could be quite sensitive um and were really matching well with some of our, our clients with epilepsy. So again, that really was then our rescue program was born that we would use rescue dogs for this purpose. Um, again, resulting in lots of different breeds. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, although we had worked with autism, um, that didn't come really until around about two thousand and seven, um, where. Um, we worked with a young boy up in Scotland and it was a bit of a pilot project and we saw the great benefits that a dog could have um, with a child and within the family. Um, so our, our three programmes, that's kind of over the 25 years and how they were born. Um, again, each one is slightly different. Um, I think they all give a massive benefit of creating um, a, a, an enhanced quality of life, more independence uh, and the companionship that the dog actually gives that particular person yeah, um, I suppose some some of these people might feel quite isolated you know with their disabilities or or, or what have you so having that constant companion must be a real benefit to them yeah and you you, you get where you know if um, they some of them do want to stay in the house they don't really want to to go out um part of the training that we do with the clients so we do a whole education program with the client as well making sure that they um understand the needs and welfare of the dog as well that you know this dog's not a tool it, it's it's living it's breathing it needs feeding walking petting um and vet care it needs all those things and so we do an education program alongside and what happens is and that you know that person has to go out for the dog then and becomes part of their routine getting out and about taking the dogs for walk and again you know our dogs are allowed into um restricted areas where your normal pet dog isn't allowed so shops supermarkets restaurants exactly like a guide dog um and that again gets a person out and about and socializing and communicating with people and the dog becomes a bit of a conversation 
uh, starter because people come up and ask about the dog. Um, So, you know, I worked with a client many years who had not been out of the house. Once we'd actually trained the dog, um, I rang her and and I got an answer machine. So, you know, she'd never had an answer machine before because she was always in the house. So it was just lovely to actually see that. Um, that that massive change in someone getting out and about. So it does make yeah, it obviously does make a, a massive difference to some people. Um, we've sort of touched upon these things a little bit in that previous uh, conversation, but um, if you could tell me a bit about the, I, I know you primarily have sort of three types of, of disability dog you deal with, so it's the autism, um, seizure alert, and uh, general disability uh, physical impairments. What are the different requirements for the, for the training levels of those dogs? What um, temperament and, and skills sort of do you, do they require um, for those different jobs? Um, and are there specific? Uh, you sort of touched on this a little bit already, but are there specific breeds that are best suited to different roles for for those different um, elements of of what you do? Right, so so for all three of our programmes, um, the standard that we're actually looking for in the dogs is um, quite a very a solid temperament type of dog. So very friendly, very outgoing, um, a dog that can cope with lots of different environments, um, and it, and is quite relaxed and calm. Um, you know, around people, uh, around traffic, around other animals. So that's the kind of what we call the, the standard that all the dogs have to have. And then in individual to those programmes, we're looking for extra special qualities. Um, so for our disability, it's a dog that maybe does like carrying, picking things up and doing and wants to interact with people and work with people. Um, our seizure alert programme... Um, again we're looking for a very people orientated dog um, that again uh, the type of dog that you know would follow you to the toilet and wants to sit with you all the time and wants to you know have that tactile relationship Um, and then for our autism program um, we're looking for very very bomb proof type of dogs so very laid back um, very chilled out dogs um, that really, you know, anything, you know, can happen around them and they're not really phased by it. So very individual to each programme, but again, the, the basis would need to pass what we would call an assistance dog um, kind of test to make sure that he has the basics before we're looking for the special qualities in each. Right, that's really good. Um, and just touching back on that just slightly, um, are, do you tend to find that there are specific breeds that, that are best suited for each specific role or is it kind of just more based on the individual dog's temperament and kind of abilities? I think start we have to look at the person you know where we're actually placing the dog um so some people might live in only small accommodation so we'd have to maybe look at size wise for those instances um and then and lifestyles as well um a lot of it is based on personality and temperament and I think we've for years used so many different breeds so with our pet dogs that we use in the disability program um, again is you know we've had from you know really small dogs to large dogs the seizure alert we tend to have used and wanted pet dogs or rescue dogs um, they seem to have the best personality suited for that program um, and then our autism we do tend to use 
maybe the Labradors Retrievers because we are looking for size in that program um, some of the work that that dog has to do is what we call kind of brace work so um, if the child is out and about um, and, and some children with autism don't sense danger um, and if they're not coping well with the environment they may try to run across the road or try to run away and, and they are attached to the dog via a, a special jacket and harness uh, and the dog is taught to brace and, and just stand and anchor for the child. Um, the parent has total control. You know, these two aren't out on their own. Right, yeah. The parent has total control of the dog on the lead and, and gives commands as well. Um, so you need quite a robust dog for that particular purpose yeah. in, in that program. And some of the dog children like a kind of... Um, feel more comfortable if they have pressure so some of the dogs maybe are taught to you know kind of lay on the chat the child's lap or rest the head on the lap as well um we've again this is we're we're touching on some of these things as as we go through as it happens through the conversation anyway um my next question was going to be where where do you get your dogs do you have a breeding program that sort of thing i mean obviously your team seem to deal a lot with pet dogs that are already in the home and also uh, dogs from rescue centres. Um, typically, do they have to be puppies that you take on or is it dogs later on in life? Or um, We tend to work with dogs later on in life. That's not to say we haven't used puppies in the past, um, but obviously have the whole upbringing process and um, we are kind of quite small charity. It's something we are looking in the future to have a puppy programme. Um, so within our disability programme, they're primarily pet dogs that we use. We don't supply the dog. They come along, they would have an interview. Um, we would assess the dog for the suitability. Um, and again, we wouldn't be doing that until the dog's around about 12, 18 months old that we'd be going through the application process. Um, with our um, rescue dogs, again, we're looking for dogs later on, so possibly from 10 months, um, again, to maybe two and a half year old, um, three that we would actually look in the rescue centres for. And with the autism, um, we have had a good relationship with guide dogs and some of the other assistance dog organisations, um, whereby if that particular dog hasn't been suited for guide work but he's, he's perfectly you know, a fantastic dog he may have more qualities that suit us um so we have used kind of you know the ex-guide dogs that have, have come along because i suppose the kills the skill set for each different role is is different enough that that's it yeah and and you know with, with um a lot of the dogs that have the guide dogs that have been through puppy walking when they actually come in to start their initial training um you know they'll they'll all have different skills um each individual dog so it's kind of the ones that maybe you know doesn't kind of um gel with the guide dog work would possibly be a fantastic dog for us in one of our programs um and with our unwanted pet dogs um we're always seeking for for you know for suitable dogs so um if there is anybody out there that has got um a young dog um looking to rehome the dog um then please get in touch and you know we would be able to assess if it would be suitable that's brilliant and um we will have all the contact details available on the website and on our social media pages so um Obviously, we'll discuss that again a little bit more at the end. But um, if you do have a dog that you think is suitable, then and certainly do get in touch. Um, so yeah, going on to training, what what is the process that's involved in training, um, and how long does that process take? And do you have many dogs that then don't make it all the way through the training and have to have to then be rehomed to somebody else, or, or 
potentially taken home by a trainer or, or what have you? Um, so from when we first got out to see a dog, we tend to do um, initial assessment around about one or two hours, and that's just really looking, just checking all the basics, making sure the dog is friendly, that he has no aggression problems, and that um, obviously he's quite um, sociable and that he's kind of generally sound temperament, you know, kind of with everyday life. Um, if he looks like he has potential, then we would have the dog for a four-week period. Um, and during this time, again, he would work one-on-one with one of our trainers um, and we'd be assessing him in all different environments. So we'd be looking at him, his social skills out and about, um, traffic and shopping centres and people um, and outdoor areas. And then we would be looking at his trainability. So can we get him to sit? Can we get him to, you know, fetch a toy um, and, and assessing that side of him? Um, and then his kind of general obedience as well, you know, um, how can we work with this dog? Um so once he's kind of gone through the four weeks, if he's suitable, um, then he would move on to more of an intensive training program, which can be anything really between 12 to 16 weeks. And it depends on, on the dog. Each dog will progress, you know, at different speeds, just like people. So, so it's kind of between that area. And this is where then he will formally start going out and about. He would learn, um, you know, you know, wearing um, one of our jackets. Um, he'd be taken into a lot of the shops and uh, supermarkets and, and areas like that to get used to. Um, he would probably do a little bit more advanced obedience work. We'd expose him to possibly, you know, things like wheelchairs and walking sticks. Um, and then also start on the exciting stuff, all the task work. So, you know, opening doors, emptying the washing machine, um, and wherever he would, you know, we're, we're thinking he will go. During that time, it is also then um, kind of assessed as to which programme he would be best suited to, whether it would be the disability, autism or epilepsy programme. Um, and they would start to be geared specifically towards that programme. At the end of that, once we'd highlighted where he was going to go, um, alongside of that, then we're interviewing people. Um, and we start to do a little bit of a matching process of who you know he might go to, which family he might go to, which person he might go to. Um, and once again, we, we would do some matching days with people. Um, and once that had actually been finalised, he would then go on to, on to an instructor for around about three to four weeks, where he, again, works with his instructor. And our instructors tend to work with the people as well. So they match the dog to the person and they would kind of do that over anything, you know, between three to four weeks. Um, the dog then goes home with the person. Um, and then we monitor from afar and again we work very closely with the person and the dog in a team situation for roughly about six months after Um, the dog would then graduate um, he would pass all his tests and he'd be out there working as a a fully recognised assistance dog Excellent and I suppose the final bit of that was yeah. do you presumably this typically happens at an early stage but are there many dogs that don't make it through the the training programme do you tend to typically weed them out really early in the training process or do you find some that almost make the grade and and aren't quite don't quite have the the correct temperament or skill set for that yeah I think you're correct yeah we tend to do a lot of that kind of early weedling out you know right at the beginning um during that four-week assessment um is a time um we don't we try not to cause too much upset during that time so you know if we have a dog and he hasn't got the potential then he would go back to to kind of where we, we where he came where from, he came from yeah. in the beginning um and 
if the dogs do get further down the line, it tends to be possibly medical problems right. that might stop the dog um, going on, or he may have had um, some experience that's caused behaviour problems that you know we wouldn't be able to work on. Um, so we would have to rehome the dog, and and if you know it's not possible for him to go back where he came from. Um, then we would rehome the dog ourselves. However, we wouldn't always send a dog back to the rescue kennels. We would find a home for him. If we'd had him for a length of time, um, we wouldn't think it was fair to then take him back to a rescue kennel. Um, so what we do, we do have a list of people who ring the charity um, that you know might say, you know, if you've got any dogs that don't make the grade. Um, and so we get in touch with those people and interview them and go through that little process ourselves. Yeah. And we always keep a check on the dogs. Any dogs that we've rehomed, um, uh, we would always make sure. Um, I suppose these dogs, they typically made it to a certain point, so they're, you know, they'd be really good pets for some people because they're, yeah, yeah. they're really well trained to, to a level. Yeah. They just haven't quite managed to make the grade. So. That's it. And regardless of whether it's at the early stage where we might have only had the dog a couple of weeks and it's come from a rescue kennel, then our trainers always send the dog with a bit of a profile um, and any problems that they've seen or you know what they've been doing that they think might you know kind of work um and and again at a later stage they've got a good training diary history that we can be passed on to people um to say you know this is what we've been doing with the dog and this is what you can do brilliant so we've kind of dealt with with the dogs themselves up to the point of um choosing them you know what what they do and training for those those different purposes um and I know this is a very broad question. It's probably not one <laughs> that's particularly easy to answer. But how much of a difference do these dogs really make to people's lives? Um, oh, tremendous, really. Tremendous is what keeps me coming back every day to work. Um, you see somebody that, you know, we first interview um, that has very little independence, that has very little confidence. Um, they tend to, um, you know, rely on family members and carers to look you know to look after them and take them out and to as a companion um and suddenly when we've worked with them with the dog wherever the dogs come from whether it's been their own pet dog or one we've supplied um you see the person gradually change they grow in confidence they start getting their own independence and they start going out and about um and the dog becomes their true companion um and they kind of rely on each other and and off they go and they go out shopping and they go out on visits um, and with, with the autism dogs, um, you see such a massive change, not only with the child, but also within the family. So we've had lots of instances where maybe um, the parents, you know, they, they've not been able to take the child to particular places. Um, one family comes in mind where the little boy had never been on a beach. It, it, they would just never have been able to get him near a beach. Um, but since they had the dog, then, you know, the other summer he was building his first ever sandcastles and he was like six year old. Mm. So, you know, that for a parent is quite emotional to yeah. say, um, again, doing things together as a family, what they've always found is if there's been other siblings, then, you know, that they've had to do, you know, mum has to do one thing with one child and dad has to do another with the other. Whereas they've managed to, with the dog, um, the child's been happy and, and uh, confident enough to go out with them as all of the family and they've been experiencing different environments and it's just wonderful you see them at such a massive change um epilepsy program again 
for someone who stays at home from fear of going out and having a seizure in the middle of the road or you know in a shop and have the embarrassment or obviously the fear of falling um to suddenly trust their dog that their dog's giving them possibly a 40 minute warning um and go to the places where they just never dreamed they would have been able to go again um we have one lady who used to she's a um, a Manchester City fan and she went to every game until she had an accident which resulted in epilepsy um, so she went so many years where she didn't really want to go to the games if she did she caused you know quite a kerfuffle there right, yeah. you know if she had a seizure and now she goes with her dog and um, he warns her if she's going to have a seizure she would go to the first aid room she has a seizure and then goes back and watches the game Fantastic. So you can see that, you know, the, the quality of life that people also get from having the dog too and, and the things that they can do that they never thought they would be able to. And I suppose with the epilepsy as well, it's, it's, it's preventing further, further injury and potential kind of damage to the person yeah, as well. Yeah, it's kind of life-threatening sometimes, the, the injuries that can happen. Um, you know, holding you know, a boiling kettle, falling downstairs... Um, so we've had, you know, when we've talked to some of our applicants, some of the injuries have been horrendous that they've had. Um, and, you know, and having the dog and doing all that warning, then that, that stops. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, because they've always, they have a bit of a rescue plan. So should they be in the middle of a shopping centre, um, they know exactly where they're going to go in that shopping centre to have the seizure uh, and carry on. And what would normally happen, they'd ha- maybe have this seizure in the middle of Meadowall, say for example, uh, an ambulance would be called, they would cart it off to hospital, they'd have to stay overnight in hospital until um, you know, they'd done all the tests and checks and then let home. So you can, you can imagine you yeah. know, that kind of day gone out of your life. Mm. Whereas with the dogs, they have the seizure and then they generally carry on shopping. They become quite blasé about it. It's just kind of just little part. Um, and, and, you know, our disability clients, again, some of the things, just even what we would take for granted, say, dropping your car keys, yeah. we'd pick our car keys and carry yeah. on. Um, if uh, someone in a wheelchair did that, they'd have to wait for someone to pass. Yeah. And, you know, which, you know, these days, unfortunately, could, you know, um, they could become quite vulnerable that, the, yeah. you know, the car keys or the, the purses on the floor, whereas the dogs can pick it up in an instant yeah. and they can get on with their day. Um Anything you know, opening doors, lots of little things that we really do take for granted. Um, the the dogs make such a difference with. That's fantastic. Um, when the dogs are out and about, sort of, sort of working in, in in public, um, what advice would you have for for the general public with dealing with them? Obviously, they typically would have some kind of identifier on them. Um, would you recommend that people don't interact with them? That people do interact with them? You know, is there is there a sort of a guideline you would suggest for, for dealing with assistance dogs in public? Um, well, yeah, all our dogs are identified, and I think assistance dogs, you know, from all the other organisations, they will all wear um, a branded jacket. Um, it will have the assistance dog logo on it, so it'll say Assistance Dogs UK. So ADA UK really is um, a coalition of, like, guide dogs, hearing dogs, support dogs. Um, and really, we, we kind of come together and share best practice and make sure that our dogs are all trained to high standards. So you kind of know where the dogs come from. Right. So it will be branded up. Um, the dogs will wear an ID tag as well. So, you, you know, very highly identifiable. Um, for the general public, um, the dogs are working. They can't generally concentrating, no. um, so it can be quite distracting for people to call the dogs across, yeah. or you know, or to do the 
yeah. that people tend to want to do um and because the dogs are dogs and they do quite friendly dogs they want to go and say hello to people so yeah i would say definitely a no-no of calling the dog clicking clapping your hands all things like that um you speak to the people you know you yeah. know you speak to the people but will probably avoid petting the dog unless they said it's fine right. for you too. Um, but generally people go up, they pet the dog and then say, is it okay to stroke them? And they're already doing it and it's yeah. all, you know, it's already done. But yeah, I don't say don't, you know, avoid the person, speak to the person. That's what the dog's there for, yeah. to be that communication barrier. But, um, you know, uh, I would avoid clicking, clapping, stroking the dog and, and trying to distract him from his work. Yeah, because obviously people see a dog, especially in somewhere where a dog's not normally seen in a, in a shop yeah. or what have you, and people kind of are drawn to it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you've got to see the person, I suppose, before seeing the dog almost to, yeah. to make sure yeah. you're doing the right thing. And, and not to be offended if that person says, no, can you not stroke the dog? Yeah. Because they might be doing very specific work, you know, and, and um, if a dog's used to fussing absolutely everybody he sees, um, then it's not very good for the person because they're never going to get anywhere. You know, they're not going to get to do their shopping because the dog is going to want to say hello to everybody. So they might be doing very specific work, so I would check with them if you feel you really needed to say hello. And obviously some of these, some of the people who have got assistance dogs might have social anxiety problems or what have yeah. you, so they may, may feel uncomfortable. So yeah. speaking to them first is obviously yeah. ideal. Um, I meant to bring this up a little bit earlier, but um, with regards to... We obviously talked about the age that, that puppies develop to then go into their training and what have you. Looking at the other end of the scale, obviously there's a finite life for for these dogs it's a, presumably a finite working life for them as well because if they start having kind of you know problems with movement and, and whatever else um presumably they they can't continue their work um how do you go about transitioning somebody from one support dog to another yeah um so throughout the dog's working life we see them at least once a year so um, we make sure that they have had regular health checks, you know, via the vet and we have correspondence with their vets as well. So we're always checking on the dog's medical health, um, but also looking at his working ability again, you know, his, his welfare when he's out working. So we actually see them out working when they get to round about eight or nine. Then we start having the, the dreaded chat, really yeah. like retirement. And we'd be looking to, to retire the dogs around 10 year old. Um, there's several options. Um, so if it is, um, a, you know, from our disability program and they originally came with their pet dog, the option is then for them to go and source another pet dog and go through the same process. However, it can be quite disheartening if they choose a pet dog that isn't suitable for the program. Um, we don't want that then resulting in them rehoming the dog and getting another dog. So what we would prefer them to do is for us to source a dog for them. Um, and so we start all that while the current dog is still working. We start looking for a suitable dog. Um, we we kind of have those conversations. Um, and again, we could do the bit of a matching process. So um, the current dog, the existing dog, will still be working alongside. Um, when we introduce the new dog, again, it really depends on the current situation as to whether the dog, it's possible for the dog to stay at home. Um, and and keep for them to keep that dog as a retired pet dog, uh, it, the dog might go to someone in the immediate family. So you know, family, friends, um, neighbours. You know, so the dog's still within their their kind of family network that they can yeah. see. Um, and you know, kind of probably the last scenario would be that we would rehome the dog into a retirement home. 
Um, and it all really depends on the situation. And it is very done on an individual basis to what is possible. So, you know, really where possible, we try and keep the dog there. Yeah. Uh, if it isn't, then we would find them a lovely retirement home. Um, and we've just a little dog go off to um, the countryside with a retired couple who they've retired to the countryside. Um, he's now he's retired with them. And we had one dog that went off to the south of France. So, nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, right we do. Yeah. <laughs> and again, we do keep in touch and we, you know, keep in contact with the dogs that have then gone on to be rehomed like that. Very good. Um, now, I suppose the the next, well, the the last thing that we should probably touch on is is how people can can look to help you as a charity. We've obviously we've touched on this a, a few times throughout the conversation. Um, obviously, donations is is a, a big factor. You know, you don't receive any government funding, so it's it's all through donation. Um, can people help with regards to training uh, and just general kind of? raising awareness of, of you as a charity how can how can people help yeah um well as being a charity obviously our backbone is volunteers yeah. so we rely heavily on volunteers to help us in all aspects that can be helping in the office you know answering the telephone doing mail shots um helping the training team so we do have volunteers that come in and help day to day so we don't have any kennels so i dogs aren't on site overnight and we do have foster homes like volunteer foster homes so that's another area so if people wanted to foster a dog um, and have them um, what we call B&B so it's overnight and weekends um, you can you know you come home and for people who work this is an ideal um, scenario because you know you're not leaving a dog at home um, you can drop the dog off with us in the morning and we have the dog roughly nine till five um, but you get the best so you come home from work and you've got your very four-legged friend there to take for walks and weekends for long walks um, however that would be need, need to be near our centre in Sheffield because we need to be able to get them every day um, sometimes we have people stay at home for some of our younger dogs um, helping out so lots of um, different options within our foster caring side um, volunteers to help us raise money because if we don't get any government funding we totally rely on donations um, to keep going um, so actually raising money helps us to, to train more dogs to help more people so that could be from a coffee morning a sponsored walk or dog walk or you could be real exciting and do a skydive if you wanted to <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah you know just we do lots of kind of um, shows so some events like you know the garden fates or dog shows, dog shows right, yep. yeah. so if people wanted to go out and help you know put a table give some information out um, and again ultimately raising awareness the more people that know about us the more people that will visit our website that may donate or you know um, kind of tell other people about us and help to raise funds fantastic um, and that sort of covers more or less everything I think um, is there any other final kind of messages that you'd like to, to send out to, to people who are listening to this yeah I think I think we're probably one of the lesser-known assistance dog organisations. Um, we were Yorkshire-born and bred, although we do have lots of uh, clients up and down the country. Um, over the past three or four years, it's been a really exciting time for support dogs. We're, we've had quite a massive growth, uh, and it's it's just a very exciting time for us as moving forward. Um, we've strengthened our fundraising team. We've strengthened our training team. Um, so please look out for us. Um, 
visit our website um, and tell people about us really and if you want to come and get involved um, if you have a, a whether it's an hour or a few more hours to spare then please help that's fantastic thank you very much Rita it was lovely to speak to you thank you um, now I'm going to bring in Danny Anderson who is the fundraising manager for support dogs could you possibly explain a little bit about your role within charity how long you've been here and 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 that, you know sure well I'm the um, fundraising manager for the charity so uh, um which I would obviously say is a key part of uh, the role of any charity. Um, but support dogs, um, we we rely 100% on uh, voluntary donations. So it's uh, it's all good fashion, old style fundraising for us. So it's um, old ladies knitting scarves and people doing tombolas and raffles. And we have a few schemes like sponsor a support dog, um, which are where people sponsor some of our working partnerships out there. Um, and um, then companies get involved and uh, yeah all sorts of different different donations and different sources really but it's all voluntary donations so each it costs around about um, around about £800,000 a year to keep the charity ticking over and we're trying to grow um, so it's uh, so it's, uh, it's a lot of work I'd imagine it is uh, how, uh, how many years have you been working for the charity and how, what was your sort of entry in, into, the, into the charity okay well I've, I've um, been at the charity for four years now um, and I came from a disability charity background working for NHS but also for other disability charities and um, I think Support Dogs is one of those special charities which I think combines two really uh, emotive factors obviously the dog side which is um, uh, which is wonderful because everybody likes dogs but in fact some ways sometimes uh, I find it in, in, in perhaps um almost trivialises the the powerful impact of what we do. So people say, oh, isn't that nice to give that, that poor, poor lady a dog or that yeah. poor, poor kid, child a, a dog? Isn't that wonderful? Um, which is, but in fact, the much wider impact. If that dog was a was a, was a, a, a tablet of some sort, an injection of some sort, or some sort of other more, uh, more uh, accepted medical device... Um, then I think people's perception would have been, probably in some ways, been much more serious of that huge impact for our for our support dogs make on life, not just our clients, but also their their family and their friends. Yeah, because you're not just you're not just providing a friend to these people. You're providing a, a you know a, a way for them to get out of the house, or or a way for them to kind of be prepared and prevent themselves from injuring themselves from seizures and what whatever else. So it's people. It's important that people see it from that point of view rather than just oh look it's nice they've got a dog yeah absolutely why I mean the, 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 it, I said it, it touches every aspect not just that individual's life you know if you look at that 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 uh, look at with our children we help with autism you're helping his life his future uh, prospects uh, of how he's able to cope with, with life um, both in a, in a sort of fundamental safety aspect, but also in a uh, in the capacity of making friends and making relationships and uh, being able to engage with the world around him, but also the impact it has on his parents and his siblings and anyone else connected with that family. Excellent. Um, so you say that the charity running costs are currently about eight hundred thousand pounds a year. Um, how many how many dogs is it that you that you support? You know, around the country. Okay, so we have around about 70 partnerships existing across the country at the moment, and we train somewhere up to about 15 new partnerships a year. Obviously, dogs 
get old and people and people change and so our support dog partnership would work for an average of about eight years and generally retire when that dog's around about 10 years of age right. um, and when existing clients certainly from our epilepsy program or our disability program retires then we uh, we then work to train a new dog a new partnership for that client um, and the build up to that is uh, is quite extensive yeah. um during that, during that eight-year working life, then we provide 24-7, 365 days a year care. We have a support line, which is always open to people if they case they need any help. And also people, you know, as I said, people, dogs, are, dogs get older and people change. And, um, you know, I, I think the same with anyone. If you've gone to school and got an A in history, coming back 20 years later and expect you to do the exam without any training you wouldn't get that A yeah. and it's the same with our dogs our dogs have to be reassessed every year um, and they you have to look at their, where their training needs to be um, uh, need a recap revision or where you know if somebody for example has a condition like MS which may deteriorate over over a number of years then that dog's role might change or you're looking at a child with autism you know if you train a dog for an 8 year old child you know fast forward 7 years and that you know, you've got a 15-year-old uh, approaching adulthood and their, their lifestyle will have changed. So very different needs at that yeah. point, I imagine, yeah. Um, so with regards to your, your fundraising, um, obviously, as you say, it's it's all it's all through donations and, and what have you. you. You have no government assistance at all. Um, what are some of the the stranger fundraising schemes that anyone may have ever ever done for you? Oh, we, do, it's, we get... Um, <laughs> You meet some amazing people through fundraising, and uh, people who just uh, just put themselves uh, to various different extremes. We have got um, uh, a seventy-nine-year-old woman who's just signed up to do a skydive for us. <laughs> she was going to wait till she was eighty, but then she saw we were twenty-five years old this year, so she decided to do it this year, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, but then we have a, a, a wide selection of um, dog outfits for people to run marathons in. We've got Excellent. one guy who's I think done nineteen years in a in a row. Of Dressing up in a giant dog outfit and running the London Marathon for us, uh, which is uh, which is tremendous. And we have you know great people doing a great North Run dressed up as dog. basically we do all sorts of fundraising, but most of it's involved people somehow dressing dressed up as, as a dog. dog. Yeah. yeah, well, you know that. I suppose that. <laughs> If nothing else, it, it promotes the kind of the brand of the charity absolutely. and what have you. Absolutely, absolutely, and it, and also uh, being a Yorkshire-based charity, the, the weather isn't always kind, so it does also provide a layer of warmth, which is so welcome sometimes. Absolutely, that's fantastic. Um, so, is there anything that that you feel that that you would want people to know about support dogs that you know to to make make people aware of, of who you are as a, comp- as a charity rather and, and how you differ from, from exist- other existing um, assistance charities I think perhaps people know we exist first of all you know it is there's a lot of charities out there lots of really good charities and some are some are much bigger than others and certainly Support Dogs um, is a smaller charity we don't have large budgets and the ability to do lots of promotion and advertising and yeah it's you know we're we're uh, what we do for the epilepsy program we're pretty much unique in the world doing that and our autism program there's very few people doing what we do in fact all our programs are you know and, and, uh, 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 are very uncommon and um, it's something that so Yorkshire should be really proud of you know uh, and it's something we really need the people of Yorkshire to, to stand up and start shouting and telling more people about our work uh, and promoting what we do
yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about the people who work for the charity, your volunteers, what they do, how maybe people can get involved if, if they would like to, if they've got some spare time they'd like to offer. Okay, so um, 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 so we, uh, we've got, oh, I don't know, we're putting on about 20 staff working for us at various different capacities and sort of part-time and full-time and, and uh, majority of that's based on sort of... Um, um, uh, dog training staff and the partnership building uh, but obviously we have the admin staff and also staff involved um, helping us with fundraising point of view but but volunteers are really absolutely key to what we do um, and um, our our charity works on a basis that we don't have any kennels so our dogs would come to school with us Monday to Friday you know from 8.30 to, to 5 o'clock and then evenings and weekends they get picked off Picked up, oh, not picked off. Picked up and taken to a uh, to a family to a family home, and uh, we have a wonderful sort of uh, 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 collection of foster carers, we call them, who provide a loving home for those dogs to come to and just relax in. So they would have come to school, had a hard day of training and learning all various things, but they just need a home where they can relax. Maybe take them a little bit of a walk in the evening, and that's kind of what we look for. And we're always looking for more volunteers to do that. We um, need some, which are sort of within the, the locality of Sheffield, but then we also look for some um, stay-at-home foster carers, sort of within a, probably about an hour, hour and a half of um, Sheffield, so probably up to sort of north. Uh, North Leeds area where we want people who are retired or people who are at home during the day and that's looking after our dogs who for whatever reason can't come to the centre yet and maybe they've just had some vaccinations or unwell so when we so it'd be better to keep them away from our training centre for the moment or they may be just a little bit younger and not quite ready for the stage for them to, to start school yet um, so I think um, you would have heard that we don't have our own breeding program, um, but um, but sometimes we do get dogs who are maybe six, seven months old, so just not quite at the stage yet when they're ready for for pro, for, for training. We also sometimes get um, dogs who, because our because there may be a, 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 a queue in our training, so we only have a limited number of, of dog trainers here, and so perhaps they're not. They haven't quite got through their stage where they want to be with the dog they train at the moment, so we have a little backlog. And so those dogs would stay at um, a volunteer's home, uh, yeah, someone who's at home during the day. Um, so, yeah, they're really vital to us. And then beyond that, it's obviously help people helping us at events, doing fundraising and various activities like that are really important to and us. I suppose it doesn't take much, you know, um, committing yourself for even a few hours on a weekend to go to an event or, or you know, just sparing a spare bit of money or, or yeah, absolutely. whatever it may so be we, I mean, we have we were at the Leeds Dog Show um, last weekend which is uh, you know we rely on volunteers manning our stand there and, and helping us create awareness and doing our tombola and our various different games we do there dressing up in the dog outfit yeah. um, <laughs> and then we also have various other events we have events up in Ripon and uh, we have a big sort of uh, clay shoot we're involved with up there and various other fundraising events where we want people to come and help us raise money but also help us raise awareness of our charity I suppose that's another key factor isn't it it's not just the money that's important obviously the, the money is the yeah. the absolute for it but um, just raising awareness of who you are and what you do which then in itself generates you know further donations further interest and yeah further donations but also for further contacts for the charity to help us bring in more skills so we know we have a voluntary board of trustees who help us run the organization it's bringing our skill sets to help us develop as an organization as well which we're always looking for so going back to those those dogs that you know maybe need fostering slightly i suppose that is 
that's almost a, a perfect thing for somebody who who would like to have a dog but can't commit to it full time. They you know they may work during the day and they don't want to leave a dog at home throughout the day or or potentially they're you know an elderly couple and you know they might not want to commit to a full lifespan of a yeah, dog because they don't know their own situation for the next five six years. Absolutely, you we get certainly our, our stay at home um, foster carers are people who perhaps who want a dog but don't want to commit to the next 15 years or so, or whatever it is of having a dog ownership and perhaps who can only, you know, want to sort of limit themselves to a, to a few year to, to a few years or just trying it out or just, you know, with their own health commitments, don't want to have that long-term commitment. So having a, a foster care is a wonderful way of doing it and you still maintain that relationship. Once that dog, it's like you, your children going off to university or leaving home, you still maintain that relationship. Whilst the, lots of our clients have still got really good, relationships with the people who first fostered um their their support dogs and you get to see them still what a difference your <clears throat> the time and effort you put into looking after that dog made a difference in the wider impact of someone's life that's great the um yeah because i mean working in a vets we obviously see kind of all ends of a, a dog's life and it's it's not entirely uncommon to see uh, an elderly owner come in, their dog is not very well, it has to be put to sleep and, you know, these discussions do come up. Somebody who who doesn't want to deal with the difficulty of maybe an unpredictable dog they take on a puppy, you don't necessarily know the um, the temperament that that dog's going, going to have when it's when it's growing older. You don't necessarily know that person, whether they're going to need to go into a, to a home a little bit later on or they may have their own health issues. So... Um, having an option like this is is fantastic for those people because they've got a, sh- a set shorter period of time with the dog um and also it's presumably going to have a temperament that makes it suitable for being a support dog so yeah absolutely certainly <laughs> it depends very hard on training you usually <laughs> find um the uh what we uh, when we first get a dog the main thing we're looking for is confidence um but that doesn't mean there won't be a lot of other behavioral uh, uh, traits um uh on that sort of day one but yeah obviously they're going to be a much you got that You've got that assurance about their personality and their and their capability. You know they're also getting training and support, so you don't have to worry so much about it. And you're getting the support you need. So, so our dogs, yeah, they're, they're usually they're usually the dog you're going to have in your home is the kind of dog you want in your home. I would Fantastic. Say. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I suppose um, probably should finish off by talking about. Um, what the message is that you want to to send out to, to people in general about uh, about uh, the charity? Okay, well, I mean, obviously, the the main thing about you learn about support dogs is just what an incredible impact that dogs have on people's lives, and I don't think you can ever uh, underestimate the 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 benefits of having a dog. Never mind a, an assistant dog. Having a dog can be on your physical health and in terms of your your mental well-being your mental health as well and um and that and your family um you know assistant dog ownership as in dog ownership is a responsibility and it's a two-way it's a two-way street and uh and you know i think uh, uh as we celebrate assistance dog week um it's worth recognizing 
that there's more than just guiding people who are visually impaired out there. You know, our, our work is our work for people with epilepsy, with people with autism, people with a wide range of physical disabilities, from MS to cerebral palsy. Um, there's plethora. You know, there's hearing dogs, there's dogs with sniff out cancer. There's all sorts of organisations out there, and it is well worth looking into those assistant dog charities and getting a greater understanding because I think it's something we're still still on the verge of an iceberg really of what or how dogs can have a greater contribution to to our human lives yeah um, and to society as and society well. yeah to society as a whole really and um, and it's uh, I think uh, as we recognise that more as a society, then I think um, our lives and our, uh, our lives and their health will improve. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Danny. It was lovely to speak to you. Thank you. So, if you would like to learn more about support dogs, or volunteer, or donate, or provide your support to the charity in any other way, you can get in touch with them at www.supportdogs.org.uk. You can also find them on Facebook at facebook.com slash supportdogsuk1 um, and they are also on Twitter at twitter.com slash supportdogsuk. Don't forget that you can get in touch with us here at Yorkshire Vets at our website yorkshirevets.co.uk on our Facebook facebook.com slash Yorkshire Vets and on Twitter twitter.com slash Yorkshire Vets. We also have a YouTube channel which has videos about general healthcare tips um, explanations of various uh, medical conditions and we are recording more videos all the time to go on that channel that is youtube.com slash Yorkshire Vets and if you have any questions for future episodes or ideas for topics that you'd like us to cover please do get in touch Um, links to contact us can be found on our website or you can contact us through one of the social media profiles And if you've enjoyed the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review and subscribe so that you can be alerted when a new podcast goes up. And we particularly appreciate it if you're able to to share it on social media so that any of your friends who also may be interested can have a chance to give it a listen. That's about all we've got time for this week. So keep your eyes and ears peeled. There should be another podcast going up in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, And until then, have a fantastic couple of weeks. See you later. (music) 